word of the Lord from the gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 27, reading verses 45 to 56. So I invite uh, your uh, reverent attention to uh, the public reading of God's holy word here in the 27th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The death of uh, Jesus uh, described in verses 45 to 50 is uh, the occasion of a cluster of miracles that are detailed for us in verses uh, 51 to 56. And the miracles testify to the sheer greatness of the person of Christ and the solitary magnitude of this event in redemptive history. There's really two events that are occurring here before us, and that is the sufferings of our Savior but what those uh, sufferings uh, secure for the people of God uh, in light of Christ as the only redeemer of God's elect. We'll look first at his suffering, verses 45 to 50. But it is noteworthy to acknowledge that all of us suffer in life. I suspect uh, most of our sufferings uh, pale in insignificance to sufferings in history. Uh, I think, for example, the... Uh, gulags of Soviet Russia. I think of the terrible prison camps, for example, of uh, North Korea, incredible suffering, starvation, great tragedies. Uh, think of the sufferings of slavery past, tragically, even today, the great uh, slavery, the 
trading, of uh, trafficking, of human misery that occurs all over the world, not, not just with adults, but with, with little children in terrible suffering. All of those sufferings captured together in a moment of time stops at the sufferings of Jesus and cannot go beyond him because this is the greatest event of suffering in all of history. And none can compare to the event before us in verses 45 to 50. In terms of redemption, every religion has its redeemers. I remind you, they're still in their tombs. Uh, that this is the one death that is solitary in its perfections, that accomplishes redemption for all time for the people of God. There is but one death that redeems, and it is the death of Jesus. And that, I think, is played out for us in the cluster of miracles, verses 51 to 56. Uh, I remind you of uh, one of the great uh, theological works in the history of the church, uh, John Owen, who is a a Congregationalist uh, wrote a book on the extent of the atonement entitled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Something of the subject matter uh, this morning, the death of all deaths and what it accomplishes. Well, Jesus has been on the cross since 9 a.m. It's now roughly noon or straight up 12, and he will die at 3, six hours of unparalleled and unprecedented sufferings. It is the greatest of deaths because of what it will accomplish and the miracles will attest to that great fact. Uh, darkness comes upon the land. It's a miracle. Uh, the text in my own mind is uh, perhaps a conceptual uh, allusion to uh, Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Uh, I may also recall a conceptual allusion to uh, the 10th chapter of uh, the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament, redemption from Egypt, Exodus chapter 10, uh, verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Amos indicates that uh, there is judgment of God upon Israel. Expressed in darkness, uh, the greater fulfillment is here. In Exodus, darkness is the last plague before the death of the firstborn. In this regard, the event may signal the judgment that is descending upon Christ in the greatest of all deaths. It is a prelude to the fourth saying from the cross. At about 3 p.m., Jesus cries out in Matthew 27 and verse 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, the words are Aramaic, while Eli is the Hebrew for my God. The citation uh, is from the Old Testament 
and the Psalter, uh, specifically Psalm 22. We're going to read that text because it's an important historic marker for us in understanding uh, God is Redeemer. Uh, Psalm 22 is an lament psalm of David. David is in trouble. He's in distress. And typical of all of the lament psalms, uh, he cries out to God. Psalm 22:1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, David is surrounded by the enemy. The implied question in his distress is, where is God? Where is my God? I'm in trouble. Jesus is now fulfilling David's trouble in its infinite reality. The event to me is judicial as Jesus does not use the more intimate, my father. He has become sin and guilt. And the father separates himself from the humanity of Jesus. And the agony to Christ and in all of his humanity is absolutely excruciating. Think of it, for example, in your own life. I, I know most of you are acquainted in some measure of form, uh, some measure of form with death or maybe in a very critical relationship, and separation occurs, and great things occur to you internally. Jesus is expressing that in the infinite reality as the majesty of the eternal God in all of his perfection separates himself in a one-time event from the humanity of the Son of God. The question implies his innocence. Why have you forsaken me? Because Christ and his humanity was absolutely innocent of every charge that has been uh, placed upon him and caused him to go to the cross. And the cry is occasioned by the theology of atonement. What occurring is occurring upon the cross, atonement, the death of death and the death of Christ. Let's examine this momentarily from the theology of the uh, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 59. The theology of the atonement uh, that I think is expressed in this greatest of all deaths, the solitariness of the death of Christ and what it accomplishes redemptively for the people of God. Isaiah chapter 59, in the second verse, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. Uh, New Testament redemptive history captured for us in the reality of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 in the 21st verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a transaction there that is absolutely incredible in its implications. The extent of the atonement, that God made his son to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The greatest transaction in all of the world accomplished by the singularity of the perfections of this death of deaths in the death of Christ. It is essential for us to grasp the reality that the cross is the place where God deals with sin. 
and there is no other place than the cross. Theologians uh, call or refer to this as penal satisfaction. Penal meaning that Christ is being punished. Satisfaction in the sense he's satisfying the wrath of God for all time for the people of God. The bystanders think that Jesus is calling for Elijah due to the similarity of the words. Uh, the Jews believe that Elijah would come before Messiah. But they've already missed this in John the Baptist. They have their preconceived notions of what God is going to do when he shows up, and their conceptions are wrong. One of the most difficult things that we must learn in our lives is to be very careful about placing our expectations about God upon God. The expectations are given to us in Scripture. And uh, the Jews were wrong. They had missed the coming of Elijah and John the Baptist. But the greatness of this miracle is that God makes provision for us and for our sins in this one-time event, never ever to be reduplicated or accomplished. I'd say, well, that's, that's understandable. But it's really not. There's a great, great majority of the confessional Christian world that sacrifices Christ on every Sunday, again and again and again. I will tell you that in the infinite perfections of the provision of God for his people, that this event is not repeatable. It's accomplished one time for all time because of its infinite perfection in the sufferings of the Son of God. This is indeed the death of death and the death of Christ. Provision, of course, is the miracle of our redemption for all time of the sons of God. From the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, we have the fifth cry from the cross. Uh, we've already looked uh, previously at the uh, previous cries uh, last week. Uh, but this is the fifth cry, John uh, 19th chapter and the 28th verse. After this joint, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Uh, it is another expression of the terrible toll uh, of the sufferings of God on the humanity of Christ. The torment, again. Uh, it's something that I think no other expression of torment in all of the history of the world can go beyond the torment of Christ upon the cross. Now, perhaps he's bleeding out or his throat is uh, parched, but someone goes to get him a drink of wine and vinegar. It's another evidence of the sufferings of his humanity. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 69:21. We've already looked at that text previously uh, last week, but... Uh, Perhaps uh, in its own way, it enables him uh, to cry out, uh, John uh, chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. So what did he finish? 
the infinite, eternal redemption of his people. Totally, completely, irrevocably, a one-time event for all time. It is the greatness of the death of Christ. Let's explore this uh, for a moment because it's a great object of argument in the life of the church. John chapter 4, in the 34th verse. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I would affirm to you my own understandings that he did not fail in accomplishing that work. There is a great expression of this in John chapter 17 that is more popularly known as our Lord's high priestly prayer. Uh, He's about to leave the earth, and he's praying. John chapter 17, verse 4, I glorify thee on the earth, I having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. This is not a hypothetical event. It's a work that is finished. And this is the immediate result of the atonement. He has secured our salvation for all time. It is the cry of triumph and victory. He has left nothing unfinished or undone. That is the greatness of the death proclaimed for us in Holy Scripture. He has drained the cup of the wrath of God so that we might never have to drink it and never will have to drink it. I simply remind you that Christ did not die to secure the possibility of our salvation. He saves. And this is the telling event of that simple sentence. He has finished the work of redeeming his people. The last cry that is occasion for us in Matthew chapter 27, in the 50th verse, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Uh, The content of that cry is found in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, in the 46th verse. Luke, chapter 23, in verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The text that documents this is a great supernatural event. Men die all of the time, but they don't die in this way. This is a death that is so incredible, it staggers us in the miraculous nature of its presentation. Jesus is in total control. He voluntarily gives up his life for us. You and I don't die in that way. Only Jesus can do that, and that is exactly what he does. He gives up his spirit. No one takes life from him. He is the sovereign God. He is buying his people. He voluntarily and willingly yields his life to accomplish salvation and to purchase his people for all time. The greatest of deaths in the death of Christ. The text not only acknowledges this, but it gives us a number of miracles, a cluster of them in cosmic signs indicating uh, the breaking up of the old order and the beginning of the new creation. 
I will simply tell you that the miracles are reflections, historic events that teach us of the greatness of this event. Men die all of the time, but this is no ordinary death. And no man has ever died accomplishing what our Savior accomplishes in his death. No man. Only this man. The next miracle is the tearing of the curtain of the temple from top to bottom. Again, Matthew 27 and the 51st verse. Uh, this curtain is the curtain that separates the holy place, the tabernacle, from the holy of holies. It means that with sin paid for and the barrier separating us from God removed by a full atonement, we now have access to God as his people. If you think about that in terms of redemptive history, it's a staggering event. In the Old Testament, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies one time of year. And even that, it was shrouded by incredible smoke, hiding, if you will, the totality of, of, of the measure of the glory of God in the mercy seat. Went one time a year. Now in the death of Jesus, the accessibility is perpetual. And we can enter as the priests of God into the presence of God because of the work of Christ. Something of this in theology, the book of Hebrews, if you have your New Testament, I trust you do, encourage you to turn there. Because it captures for us, again, the essence of what is accomplished by the death of Christ. Uh, book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, the 19th verse. Uh, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. What is that hope? The fact that Christ has entered into the Holy of Holies and made God accessible to us so that we can go to him every day as the sons of God. Hebrews chapter 10, 20th verse. By a new living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Every religion has its pilgrimages, does it not? Muslims go to Mecca, go to Medina. Every religion has such pilgrimages. You and I have one too, accomplished by Christ, one time, irrepeatable. Opens the door to the Holy of Holies and the glories of the presence of the greatness of God for God's sons, which we are by his death. But the sign is more than this. In his death, Jesus destroying the temple in the old order, in the old creation. The old way of approaching God in the Old Testament is over in Jesus. The continual parade of all of the sacrifices all collapse now upon him as a solitary sacrifice to effect atonement for sin 
that is now irrepeatable in the death of death and the death of Christ. G.K. Beale in his uh, book on the temple describes uh, the curtain as a veil that was embroidered with the symbols of the starry heavens, meaning that Jesus has begun the destruction of the old creation. It's not the final destruction, but it is the beginning of the end and the death of Christ. The corollary, of course, to that is just as astounding accomplished on the cross by our Savior in the beginning of the new creation. It's already started. You and I oftentimes think about the final destruction of the world. It's already begun in Jesus. You and I also think about the new creation, all of its greatness, all of its glories, all of its majesty. It's already begun in Jesus. It's exactly uh, the reality uh, captured for us by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. How is it that the old has passed away and new things have come? The death of death and the death of Christ. The majesty of the miraculous the provision of God, the one-time sacrifice for all time. The next cosmic sign, verse 51, uh, Matthew chapter 27, earthquake causing uh, the opening of, of a number of tombs. Again, miraculous event cascading from the reality, the majesty of what is accomplished by Christ. We're going to read verses 52 to 53. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Again, attesting to the majesty of what is accomplished by our Savior in the cross. Uh, the illusion, uh, I think here, is uh, very important, uh, comes from us from the great prophet Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. Uh, you and I know this uh, chapter as uh, the vision of the valley, the dry bones. The prophet has a vision of dry bones, meaning that there's death. The bones, bones are bones. It means people have died. How do bones come together and live? Well, <laughs> well they don't, save one event cross. Ezekiel 37, verses 11 and 12. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. We're now in the land of Israel and graves are being opened up as a partial fulfillment of this great prophetic event. Uh, Isaiah chapter 26 and 19th verse, perhaps another confession, confessional statement of the greatness of the death of Christ. Your dead will live. 
your corpses will rise. And in a momentary flash in the historical event of the cross that occurs in the land of Israel, graves are opened up and those who are dead come to life. The text of Ezekiel speaks to the resurrection of the nation out of captivity, the vision of the valley of the dry bones, they are dead, God gives them life, but it is a type of a greater resurrection now fulfilled in the cross by Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. It speaks to the incredible power inherent in the death of Jesus as the basis of life. It's a portent of the general resurrection to a glorious eternity. I remind you of this because simply telling you this greatest of all events has already started, even though it has not reached its terminal perfections. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, sadly others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But the power of the cross is so incredibly great that it is uncontained if even but for a moment. And these saints regain bodily life temporarily like Lazarus in John chapter 11. One of the great messianic sayings, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. This opening of the tombs and the momentary a glimpse of the greatness of the power of the cross is now being fulfilled and open to us in divine revelation, Matthew chapter 27. It's the greatest of all events to which every heart of the sons of God beats to live to see that day, but it's already begun in Jesus and the forgiveness of sin. We've been raised in our spirits as a reminder that we have the first fruits in the greatness of bodily resurrection at the end of the age. It's already started in phase one, but phase two will come in God's providence time. It's the resurrection that life beyond the grave is only in Christ because of his work upon the cross. It's very interesting to me that a lot has been written in previous times in our country about Islamic faith, and pilgrimages. They go to a tomb in their pilgrimages. You and I go to a tomb, but it's empty. That is the incredible significance of the death of death and death of Christ. It is so great, it causes life. The new creation and the breaking up of the old order, the old way, because of its power and its inherent majesty. The next, uh, let me say, uh, every culture struggles with death. Our own culture is uh, desperate to find some answer, isn't it, to stave it off? Healthcare this and healthcare that. And I'm not unmindful of the great uh, provisions of modern day healthcare and all that it accomplishes. I don't mean to make light of that, but you know what? 
and all that they bring to us and all that they will bring to us in future discoveries, we're still going to die. This is the only answer. Death of death and the death of Christ. What it means and what it is and the accomplishment uh, to the people of God. The next great miracle is uh, the confession of, uh, again, Matthew uh, chapter 27, and the 54th verse. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Parallel expression of this in Luke chapter 23, the 47th verse. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God. I see it as evidence of a Gentile coming to faith. With, with all that has gone on, he is overwhelmed by the miracles, and he embraces Christ in but a moment. He beholds the cross. And God opens his eyes to see what the death of death and the death of Christ means for him as a sinner before God. And the answer is the cross. And God gives him eyes to see. It's a beautiful expression of this in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, again, the centurion was a Roman soldier. He was a Gentile. Comes to God because of the cross. Matthew chapter 8 Verses 11 and 12. But I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Uh, particular context of this is very instructive. A centurion is a sick servant. He goes to Jesus and says, make him live. And Jesus makes him live. God reaching the Gentiles and the power, the grace of God. Uh, the church, the early church, struggled mightily with this event of Gentiles coming to faith. I, I don't know all of you, but I, I suspect most all of you are Gentiles, if not every one of you. In the Old Testament, the Gentile couldn't come to faith. It had to go through Israel. It had to go through the entire sacramental system of circumcision and on and on. Now that's changed forever because of the death of death and the death of Christ. Even Gentiles come to God and they come to the table and will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church, again, struggled with this because they didn't understand the miracles of the cross. Uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 18 is something of an expression of, uh, of that struggle. Uh, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has granted to Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And the cross opens that door and makes repentance that leads to life happen. That Christ is now the end-time temple, fulfilling the original purpose of the temple and expanding the outreach of the glory of God to cover the earth and the majesty of the death of Christ. 
no longer contained just to Israel, but it reaches all of the nations, all people, tongues, tribes, and nations swept into the kingdom of God by the majesty of the sacrifice as the nations now are streaming into that kingdom. And one of the events here that is a testimony of that is the centurion beholding the cross and the miracles and the cluster of them surrounding the cross is swept into the kingdom and the power of God because of what the cross means and what the cross does. It gives life to the people of God. It's another great miracle here. I call it the miracle of the Marys. Matthew 27. Verse 55, many women that were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Again, they're named in verse 56, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It's a miracle in its own way. It's a miracle in oftentimes a classic way that we might describe it, but... Uh, all the men save John is scattered. These women stay the course, go the distance, following Christ as if some way they might minister to him. That's a miracle. Generally, when there's a great catastrophe, people run away from it. These women hang around, the greatness of women. By the way, the Christian church elevates women like no other institution in all of human history. Why is that? Because of the cross. There's no longer that distinction. We're all the priests of God and the majesty of what Christ has accomplished. These few are courageous and follow and remain true to the end to serve him in spite of all of the horrors they have seen in the death of death and the death of Christ. They go to danger. Most everyone else runs from it. It's a testimony to us the power of the cross, and these women are expression of that. And so what does Matthew chapter 27 tell us? This was no ordinary death, supernatural event, and the cluster of miracles attest to it. They help us to interpret the meaning of this greatest of deaths. Think of the meaning. He assumes the judgment that we deserve and pays it in full. In full for all time. He opens the way to God in perpetual accessibility. The miracle of the sons of God can enter into the divine presence at any moment, any day. In the beginning of the new creation, in our life because Christ has begun the new creation and made us new creatures by his power. And his death, this one death, is the only death that accomplishes redemption. All other religions turn back, save Christians at the cross. I would simply tell you from the words of the revelation of God, gospel of Matthew chapter 27. If you are a Christian, you have seen Jesus. 
And having seen the cross, there's nothing else to behold or to see. The majesty of what this death means, what it has accomplished. If you're not a Christian, I can only encourage you to go and to reread the text and to ponder it, what it means. To see it not just as an ordinary biological event, but a theological event in which God does marvelous things for the people of God. And then to cry in your own hearts, oh God, open my eyes that I might flee to Christ and to hold him perpetually in the greatness of who he is in light of the greatness of what he has done for his people forever. Never to be repeated because perfection cannot be repeated. And this is that death. And may God awaken us all to the solemnity of what it is in solemn worship. And if you're not a Christian, uh, may God give you no rest or peace until you come to the peace of God because of the work of the Prince of Peace. And may you rest perpetually in him because of who he is and what he has done for us on the cross, the cross.